I hope you were blessed with uh, my wife singing because that's the best we have to offer in my house. Um, but we'll see what we can do. Um, I am uh, honored to be asked to share with you this morning. If you don't know who I am, my name is Matt Wright. I'm the student pastor here. Um, they let me out of the cage we know as the Annex uh, to come and share this morning. <coughs> and so... Um, I'll be here. I have no idea what's going on over there this morning. I hope everything's okay. Um, so anyway, at, most of you know, when I do get the opportunity to share over here, not only do I want to bring a message from the Word, but I also want to give some insight and some uh, ideas of what we do across the street, because there are lots of misconceptions about uh, student ministry. My favorite is... Um, I've heard it said that pretty much a youth pastor just plays basketball all day and leads a Bible study on Wednesday night. I assure you if that was the case, I would be in better shape. Um, you know, somebody, I had a parent one time brought her two kids uh, every week faithfully on Wednesday night, and then one of them got grounded from church. And I mean, I understand you got to do what you got to do, but church, really? You want to ground them? I mean, you want them to be here hearing the word, right? And they were like, Oh, you teach the Bible? Well, yeah. Well, apparently all their kids was talking about the games we played. They never talked about how we worshiped God or we read the Bible. And so she thought we were just playing games. And of course, we do play games. We have uh, done all kinds of games, everything you'd possibly imagine, including a mechanical bull. Um, but it's all in order to get more students here so that they can hear the word, to get more students here so that they can be discipled into mature believers in Christ. And so uh, this last fall, we did a series, or this last spring, we did a series entitled Heroes. And uh, unless you've had your head buried in the sand, you know that superheroes are huge right now. Hollywood is pumping in billions and billions of dollars into making these movies and uh, we are going out and flooding to the theaters and buying the t-shirts and action figures and all the stuff associated with superheroes. It's big right now. And so that's what we did is we took a series and we looked at some of the superheroes that are in our society and then we turned it around and changed it to look at some of the heroes in the Bible and what we could learn from them and how we can be a superhero for the faith or a hero for God. And specifically, we looked at the heroes in the book of Judges. Um, Judges is a book that we may not be quite as familiar with, um, and so let me set it up historically for you. The book of Judges happens about 100 years after the people of God left slavery in Egypt. And so you know the story there, right? God's people are enslaved, and God calls Moses to come and, and uh, lead his people out. So he goes into Pharaoh, and he does the whole let my people go, right? And so they come out of Egypt, and they, <laughs> I'm glad somebody laughed. Um, and so they come out of Egypt, and they make it to the promised land. And of course, because of their sin, um, they're not able to go in yet. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years before they get back to the promised land. Leadership changes hands from Moses to Joshua, and Joshua leads his people into the promised land. So here we are, 60 years after God's people has been delivered into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. Joshua is no longer the leader, and the country does not have an official figurehead. It was designed for God to always be the leader of the people of God, not for a man to be. 
um, but that wasn't working out for them. And so in order to understand why we have judges, why we have judges, we have to understand what God commanded his people to do when they went into the promised land. God was very clear with his people how they should interact with the people in the land that they were going into. Um, whether the people lived uh, in the surrounding area or if they lived specifically in the promised land. And so we're in Deuteronomy chapter 20, and this is where God is telling his people in verse 16 how they should deal with the people that are living in the promised land. So Deuteronomy 20 verse 16 says, In the cities of the nations of the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. So he's very clear to his people. As you are going into the promised land, you are to destroy everything in the area where you dwell. Now, like I said, the people in the surrounding areas, they could make agreements and treaties with, but in the country, in the land where they were going to dwell, they were told to destroy everything. Now, in our own human wisdom, we can look at and think, that's a little cruel. How, how would God desire that? But we have to remember that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so in his wisdom, he is establishing a brand new country, a country that would be to follow him with everything that they do and that he would bless them and that they would rise above what's around them and everybody would understand that this is through the glory of God and that the whole world would be blessed because of this great nation. And that was God's original plan. But as you can imagine, man messed it up. And so they did not follow this command. They started out as uh, Joshua led them into Jericho. They destroyed it in a few more cities. But as they got deeper into it, they changed their MO. And they started making treaties and deals with the people instead of destroying them like God had told them to do. And so just as this passage said, it, because of that, they would learn to worship other gods and sin against the one true God. And so that's what happened. And so here we are, 60 years after the people of God entered the promised land, 60 years after the people of God disobeyed, and were in judges, and were understanding the consequences of their sin, the consequences of their disobedience. And so Judges chapter 2 starts out with God reminding the people of their disobedience, and the result of it, chapter 2 verse 1 says, the angel of the Lord went up to Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares for you. And so God is true to his word that they disobeyed, the people were there, and they will become traps, and they will become snares because of their disobedience. And so this sets us up for the book of Judges and what's about to happen. Now, when I say a judge, most of your mind jumps to somebody sitting in a robe down at the courthouse 
making rulings between either a civil disagreement or a criminal case and what the punishment should be for doing something wrong. And while the judges of this time would have done some of that, they had a much larger role, a much bigger role. Many of them were expected and were the war heroes of the day. They would lead the armies. They would help conquer the nations that were oppressing them. They would lead the country by example. Of course, like I said, they did some of the decision-making and settling disputes and stuff. But ultimately, the judge was to set the direction for the nation of Israel. And so this was the leader. Maybe a king would be a better word, but they weren't ready for a king. And so God gave them judges to help them lead them in the nation of Israel. And so as we did with the students, we went through and we looked at several of the judges and how God used them to be heroes in their time and how we can take their story and figure out what we need today to do today to be a hero in our time. And so some of the judges are, are fairly obscure. There's actually 12 of them. Um, but one of the one more interesting ones is a guy named Ehud, E-H-U-D, Ehud. And God called him out to be a judge, to be a superhero for the faith. And Ehud was just your average Joe. He was a normal guy, just like me, just like you. There was nothing special about him. He was a member of the tribe of Benjamin, which was the lowest tribe, the smallest tribe, and God called him out of that. Um, he also had a very serious affliction. Um, in fact, probably about 10% of this room has the same exact affliction today. It's called left-handedness. We got anybody in here with that affliction? You're left-handed? Good, you're raising your left hand. That's good, good. Oh, there's a right hand right there. All right, so you can probably speak to this better than I can, but the world just isn't set up for left-handed people. I mean, as simple as cranking your car. If you're right hand in the room, think about cranking your car. You reach up there with your right hand, you turn the key, and you put it in gear, right? Now, think if you had to do that with your left hand, how awkward that would feel for you, right? You with me? Left-handers, how is that for you? Yep. All right. So the world is set up for right-handed people because 90% of the world is right hand. And so this is the way God created Ehud, and he's going to use that in order to help him be a hero of the faith. And so here's how it plays out. The Moabites have oppressed God's people, and through that oppression, they are required to pay a tribute or a tax to the king. And so one year, the people chose Ehud as their leader, to go and pay the tribute or the tax to the king. And so that's what they did. They took all the stuff and they laid it before the king and then they left. As he was leaving, Ehud was like, y'all wait here, I got one more thing to do. And so he goes back to the king and to the um, guards and he says, I have a word from God to give to the king. Now, to me this sounds kind of sneaky from the very beginning, but you got to realize that if you think like back in Roman times how the tax collectors were, a lot of times they were more loyal to the Romans than they were to their own people, right? And so this king is thinking, maybe this guy who just brought me a lot of money and who maybe is loyal to me is going to tell me about how 
the people are revolting and I need to do something about it. Or he may be about to tell me just something that I need to know that's going on right here in my land. And so the king invites him in. Now, it's said that he fashioned a dagger that he was going to use to kill this king. Now, here's where the left-handed part comes in. If you were right-handed, you would keep your sword or your dagger on your left side because that would be easy to pull it out, right? Awkward to pull it from this side. You might cut yourself or something. And so a right-handed person would keep it there, but a left-handed person would keep it on their right side. So as the guards would have most certainly checked him for weapons, somebody that might have been a little lazy or not the best guard would have done a much better job checking the left side than the right side because that's where a weapon would typically be. And so maybe this left-handedness is his way of slipping this dagger into the king. So he goes in to tell the king and he says to the king, I have a word from, the, uh, from God, and it says that the king standed. Now here is where it gets interesting. You ever have a friend that tells a story and you're like, oh, TMI, too much information. You with me? For whatever reason, the Bible decided to give a little bit TMI. So I'm going to give it. And so the king stands and it says he is a very large man. Okay, I guess if you were a king, you get to eat as much as you want, sit on the throne and do nothing. And so he is a very large man. And so when he stands, Ehud takes his dagger and rams it into his belly. And it says the fat closes in over the dagger. There's a little more, and if you're there, you can read it, but I'll skip that part. Then it goes on to say he slips away, he slips away and locks the door behind him, and the guards stand outside the, waiting for the king because they think he's in the bathroom, and they wait to the point of embarrassment. I don't know what that point is, but whatever that point is, they decide to go in and find that their king has been killed. They chase after Ehud, and Ehud reunites with the army, and they are able to kill 10,000 Moabites, deliver God's people into a time of peace. So a very interesting story um, that we shared with teenagers, and I share with you today, because then I challenged them to understand that God created Ehud from the very beginning of time with all the gifts, with all the talents, with the left-handedness, with all the quirks, whoever he was, in order to accomplish the purpose that God was calling him to be. And so many times we look around and we think we may not be good enough, or there's no way I can do what that person does because they're more popular or they better looking or whatever it is, and we tell ourselves we're not good enough. But we are because our Creator created us for a purpose and He gifted us in order to do that purpose. So then we move on to the story of Deborah, which you're probably a little bit more familiar with Deborah, and she is the judge, and she is leading, but a little bit differently. She is not the war hero. She's not out there sticking a dagger in a king's belly, but she is leading from the background, and her military leader, Barak, comes to her, and she says, you need to go out and lead uh, the army. And he said, I will only go if you go with me. And as a good leader, she says, I will go with you so that we will have victory. But because of your lack of faith, you will not receive glory for this. A woman will. It goes on, and there is victory. 
But we understand through the story of Deborah, and we challenge our students as I challenge you today, that God has a specific purpose for you. It may be different than somebody else's, but just because you're not the person standing on stage singing, or you're not the person standing on stage delivering the message, doesn't mean that your role isn't important. You may look up here and go, God is really using those people. But when I look out, I see people in our parking lots. I see people teaching our children and changing diapers and at the welcome desk and teaching Sunday school in the youth. And I go, God is really using those people. And so God called Deborah to be a judge different than she did Ehud and some of the ones to follow, but she was still important. She still played her role in delivering God's people into a time of peace. And so we challenge you to find your specific plan that God has for you. We jump ahead to Gideon, who uh, you may know this story as well. He is hiding. Um, he's hiding from the Midianites. He is threshing wheat in a wine press. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and addresses him as a mighty warrior. He looks more like a scaredy cat. But God addresses him as a mighty warrior. Why? Because God sees him for who he is and who he was created to be, not who he's acting like. And so we go through the story of Gideon and how after some convincing, he eventually leads an army of 300 to defeat the Midianites. And we understand through that he is a mighty warrior. He is who God's created him to be. And we challenge our students with that same thing. In order to be a hero for the faith, you must understand that God has created you as a mighty warrior and that through His power, you can go and you can defeat evil and you can stand up to what is wrong in your school or in your work or in this community or in the world. And as mighty warriors, we can defeat the enemy. As you go through the book of Judges, the first few judges seem to do a really good job of following God, but the farther you get into the book of Judges, they are less and less good. You with me? Um, and so it gets weirder and weirder because they're drifting farther away from God. And you get to a judge named Jephthah. And uh, Jephthah is the leader of the army. And they are out doing battle or getting ready to do battle. And God tells them that they will have victory in this battle. And so Jephthah, in order probably because of his pride or his arrogance or just to look good in front of the people, stands up in front of his army and he takes an oath. An oath, first, that God did not ask for. Second, that he did not want. But in order that Jephthah could receive the glory, he made an oath and he said, God, if you will give us victory today, I will sacrifice the first thing I see when I get home. And so, because God is good to his word and faithful, they did have victory in that battle. And then Jephthah got home with this oath hanging over his head. And I don't know about you or what Jephthah was thinking, but when I get home, usually the first thing I see is my wife and my kids. I don't have too many goats or sheep or doves coming out of my house to greet me when I get home. And neither did he. His daughter was the first person out of the house to greet him. And he fell down and cried because he understood that he had made an oath to sacrifice now his daughter. Now he had a decision to make. God did not desire this sacrifice, but he went ahead and did the sacrifice because he was too worried about what the people thought about him. What would the people think if I didn't keep my oath? 
and he sacrificed his daughter. And so we tell this story and we look at it to understand that maybe all the judges didn't do everything right, but we can still learn from them because when we as people worry about what other people think, we're going to sin. We're going to fail. We're going to do what's wrong. But when we worry about what God says and what God thinks and we follow Him completely, that's when we get it right. And so that's what I challenge you with this story today is that not to worry about what the world always thinks, but to always focus on God and what His will is for you. And then you get to the last judge, and it's Samson. Very familiar with him. Samson, so far away from the God that I, God still used him, but he wasn't really even following God. He was born under the Nazarite vow where he should not touch any alcohol, dead body, or ever cut his hair. And he totally ignored them except for cutting the hair because I think he realized that's where his source of strength came from. But still, even in the end, he gave that secret away to a deceitful wife who took that away from him as well. But God still used him in spite of his sin. But we understand that in order to follow God, we must keep his commands from the story of Samson. And so we look at the superheroes, we looked at the judges, and the judges were the original superheroes of the Old Testament. When God needed somebody to defeat an oppressing nation, he would call it a hero. He would call out a hero, give them supernatural powers, and allow them to save his people. And so we are called to be heroes for the faith as well. I think God is calling each and every one of us to do amazing things for Him. And in order to do that, we can follow the example of some of these heroes and understand that God has a specific plan for you. Whatever that plan is, you need to seek after it. You need to look for it. It's going to look different than the person sitting beside you or sitting on the other side of the room. But whatever it is, that is your calling. And you need to fulfill it. And as you follow through with that calling, you have to accept that God has already given you the gifts. You are good enough because God created you that way. Whatever quirks and, and idiosyncrasies you have, God gave them to you and God can use you. And then finally, as we follow our command, we understand that we are a mighty warrior because that's who God's created us to be and we should take the fight, we should take the battle to the evil one, wherever he is, wherever we encounter him in our lives, and that if we can learn from Jephthah that if we ignore the people of this world, it will be much easier to follow God. And so that's what we did with the teenagers, and I hope that that's challenged you today. But as we went through this, I started to question, why would we need 12 judges? Why wouldn't we just need one judge? Why did this same thing keep happening over and over and over again? And I started looking at that and realizing that God was revealing who he is. You see, these judges came forward and, and they got their power from God. And their power from God enabled them to accomplish the task that he gave them. And just like with every superhero out there, there's a power source behind it. You with me? Does anybody know the story of Spider-Man? Personally, I'm a Batman fan, but Spider-Man's a little more interesting when it comes to this. So... Spider-Man, if you know, started out as a puny punk named Peter Parker. And he was a teenager that was very brainy and unpopular, and he lived in the city of New York. 
He was at a science exhibit, and at that time he was bit by a radioactive spider. Why they had a radioactive spider? Beats me. But he was bit by it, and this bite was the source of his strength. It was the source of his agility and allowed him to climb the walls and the ceilings and gave him what we call a spidey sense, the ability to see what was coming. And so at first, he received all these powers from that radioactive spider bite, and he used it for selfish reasons. Many of us would probably do the same. Um, But one day, he was witnessing a robbery that he let go, and how would he know that the result of that was his uncle would end up being shot and killed? Because of this experience, he changed um, his motives. He changed who he was, and then he started helping others who were innocent and needed help. And he did it what appeared to be very selflessly. And so the power source for Spider-Man was his radioactive spider bout. If we went through the superheroes, they all have a power source coming from somewhere. If we go through the superheroes in the Bible, they all have a power source, and it's the exact same one. It's the Holy Spirit of God working in them and through them, giving them supernatural powers in order to do supernatural things. And so we see this very clearly in the very first judge The very first judge in the book of Judges is in Judges chapter 3. If you've been sitting there looking at your worship guide going, it says chapter 3, why aren't we reading it? We're about to. And so flip there, Judges chapter 3, verse 7. This is the story of the first judge, Othniel. Verse 7 says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. You see, this was predicted back in Deuteronomy that they would serve the other gods. And they did, and they were serving them. But what jumps out in this verse to me is it says they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. My guess is, as they were serving the other gods, they didn't necessarily think we're sinning against God, we're doing bad. They had drifted so far from God and had adapted these other gods into their religious activities that they probably thought it was okay but it said it was evil in the eyes of the Lord. We do this same thing, don't we? We look at some of the sin in our life and we rationalize it away because, well, our government has made it legal. Our society has made it normal. Our neighbors are worse than we are. We rationalize our sin and go, it's not that bad. But it doesn't really matter what our government thinks. It doesn't really matter what society, your neighbor, or even you think is evil. What matters is what God says is evil. And if it's evil in the eyes of the Lord, it is evil. And so if just like with God's people, they were doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, they're going to be punished for it. If you were doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, you will be punished as well. Verse 8, we find the punishment. It says, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathahim, king of Aram Nahavrahim to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. Say that name five times fast. God sold them to a country. God was in control. It was not by accident that the people of God were oppressed by another nation. It was because of their sin. And it's very clear from verse 7 to verse 8 that it is because of their sin 
that he punished them. And so this punishment is just because God is just. Moving on, verse 9. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave the king of Aram into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him, so the land had peace for forty years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. And so this is the cycle of judges laid out in six verses. The people do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that's repeated multiple times. And then God allows a nation to overtake them and oppress them. Then they cry out for help. Then God provides a hero or a judge to deliver them into a time of peace. And then the cycle continues. They do evil in the eyes of the Lord. They are oppressed by a nation. They cry out for help. And then God sends a hero to deliver them into a time of peace. They do evil in the eyes of the Lord. God sends a nation to oppress them. They cry out and repent for help. And then God sends a hero to save them and deliver them into a time of peace. I could do this 12 times, but I'm not. We understand through this cycle God's character. God is revealing who He is over and over and over again. First of all, we understand that God is just. That God will punish sin. He will not let it go unpunished. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. But sin will be punished. And we understand that is who God is and who God is going to be. We understand that God has a love for His people, an amazing love for His people. We understand it in two ways. First, we understand it because He punishes them. If you're a parent, you understand this, that part of your job is to punish your kids because in order for them to grow and to be contributing members of society, we have to punish them and discipline them to get them to grow. I remember, I wish I could remember the details, but I don't. I had punished my oldest son, and I sent him to his room. And as he stomped off to his room, he yelled, I have the worst parents ever! And I just went, yes! Because I understood that that is part of his growth. Not that I want to be the worst parent ever, but that we have to understand that in order for our children to grow and be who we want them to be, they have to be corrected. God God understands that about his people. His people are making bad choices. His people are worshiping other gods. And so he loves them enough to punish them to try to correct this behavior, we also understand that He loves His people because every time they call out for help, He sends a hero. Every time they repent, they turn from their sins, He sends a hero to save them. And so no matter how many times they failed Him, He was there for them. God is the same today as He was back then. God is still just. He will still punish sin in your life and in my life. God has an amazing love for you. He has an amazing love for me. And He will never give up on us. 
No matter how many times we sin, no matter how many times we mess up, he is still standing there saying, come back. He's still standing there calling, saying, I want to save you from that. I want to free you from that. He's calling you back no matter how many times you've messed up. So today, as I've challenged you through the book of Judges, and we understand who God is because how he interacted with his people, I want to offer this invitation to you today. I don't know where you are. You may be sitting here and you heard the first part of this about how I've challenged you to be a hero for the faith. And you say, you know what? I need to do that. I need to step up. I need to be who God's made me to be, who God is calling me to be. And I need to follow through and serve him. Then I want you to commit to that today. You may be sitting here and you're so far away from being a hero because of the sin that has trapped you, the sin that is oppressing you from being who God has created you to be. And you need to lay that at the altar today. You need to come forward and lay that at the altar or you need to pray right there in your pew. You may not even have the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no way we can be a hero for the faith until we've invited Jesus into our lives and the Holy Spirit to give us the power we need to be a hero for the faith. And so if you need Jesus today, the ministers will be standing up here and you can come forward and talk to one of us. As the musicians come, I'm going to pray. And then you respond however God has called you. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are just. We thank you that you are loving. God, I pray for each and every person in this room that has been challenged through your word today, that has heard that you love them and that you want them back, God, that they would lay their sin down at your feet, that they would repent and turn back to you so that you can save them and deliver them from that oppression. God, as we sing and people respond, we pray that you're glorified. In your son's name we pray. Amen.